A reading from the Old Testament, Isaiah 59, 1 through 2, and 12 through 13. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Isaiah 53, 4-6 Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is a season when we remember and celebrate the birth of our Savior. Each week, we light a candle to help us commemorate. And now a reading from the New Testament, Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We're starting a new series of conversations today. We're calling it The Savior of the World. If we were to do a series of lectures on what it means to be a Christian, what we believe, the basics of our faith, today's conversation might be the third lecture. We would probably start with something like the knowability of God, that God can be known and that we can have a relationship with God. And then we would probably talk about the characteristics of God and what he's like. And as a third part of our conversation in Christianity 101, we would talk about today's topic. This is foundational and fundamental, so I want you to put on a little bit of your philosopher's hat and a little bit of your theologian's hat today. This is a critically important conversation for us. I asked someone after the nine service, was it a little boring today? And people aren't usually honest with that question. This person said, yeah, it was kind of a little boring. So stay with me. It's critically important and it's good stuff. Isaiah 59 that uh, Nikki read for us was delivered during a time of dramatic social and political difficulty in Israel. The questions that preoccupied the streets of ancient Israel were, isn't God God? Isn't he a deliverer? Isn't he our savior? Isn't he the king of kings? Lord of lords, where is he in our time of need? Why doesn't he deliver us? And did you hear Isaiah's answer? Look at verses one and two. God is able to save His arm is long enough. His hearing is clear. The problem is not with God, not with his willingness, certainly not with his ability. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you, 
Isaiah said. Simply put, the ancient Israelites were their own problem. They had a sin problem. Sin blocked the flow of their connection to God. In fact, verse 2 is a bit terrifying. Evidently, God doesn't answer all prayer. Evidently, sometimes the bandwidth between their cries and God's ears was so overcrowded by their sin that the signal didn't get through. And according to the Bible, we suffer from the same signal distortion. According to the Bible, we also have a sin problem. Okay, let's pause for a second. Look, we know we have serious problems. Politically, for instance, we know that we can't get along and it's getting worse. I was stunned by the results of a survey that I saw recently. I mean, I've been watching the culture fall into disarray along with the rest of you, but still, according to this study, this is a survey within the United States, people are asked their level of trust of 14 different institutions, including Congress, the president, the news media, business leaders, religious leaders, and doctors. The highest trust rate in this survey was labeled, quote, significant trust. Do you have significant trust in this institution? The highest significant trust rate was for the military, and it was under 15%. That was the highest rate of trust. In fact, in another recent survey, respondents said they trust Amazon more than they trust the government. Less than 15%. That included religious leaders. Did you catch that? I mean, that hurt. We've got problems, and Every CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News talking head has some idea about the reason why. In fact, we're obsessed with what is sometimes called, in today's vernacular, the meta-narrative. That's our way of describing big-picture explanations now. They call it meta-narrative. So what is the meta-narrative for all this mess? We'll get to that in a minute. And of course, this is not just true for Americans. There are problems globally, wars, famine, horrific injustice, unprecedented natural disasters. We've got huge problems, and the search for a meta-narrative to explain all of this is unending. Perhaps it's radical Islam, or broader, perhaps it's, it's all right-wing religious movements, or perhaps it's political corruption, or perhaps it's racism, perhaps it's climate change. I'm sure you've heard these meta-narratives and more. Some of those are problems, no doubt. Then, of course, we have personal problems, financially, physically, relationally, even in our own minds and hearts, how we connect to ourselves. We know our lives aren't all that we want them to be. Sometimes our lives are far from what we want them to be, and we have our own theories about why. Perhaps it was our upbringing, or deficiencies in our education, or, or deficiencies in our self-discipline, or some other character trait that you wish you had, or maybe it's lack of opportunity, or, or someone was against us. We've got problems, and we know it. We don't always agree on the meta-narrative which would explain our problems, but we agree pretty much that we have them. So if you're new to the faith, it may surprise you to know that the Bible actually speaks to this. It offers a meta-narrative that explains these problems, all of these problems, and I'm convinced that the Bible is right. Some of these aren't also contributing factors, but underneath it all, foundationally, underneath... There is a meta-narrative which explains all of this mess. And the Bible tells us our problem, just like the ancient Israelites, is sin. Isaiah continues his lecture in chapter 59. In verse 3, he says, Your hands are defiled with blood. 
Your lips have spoken lies, according to Isaiah, and what they did, and in what they said, they were guilty, dripping with blood, dripping with lies. And not just in their relationship with God. Verse 4 goes on. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They were taking one another to court and falsely, speaking lies, conceiving mischief. Down down in verse 7, they run to evil. Down in verse 8, there is no justice in their path. The reason your situation is so difficult, even desperate, Isaiah says, is not because of God, it's because of your sin. So what does he mean by this? Specifically, what does he mean by sin here? Well, think of sin as anything you or I think, say, or do through which we are trying to find our meaning, our purpose, or our pleasure apart from our connection to God. Anything we think, say, or do through which we're trying to find our meaning, our purpose, or our pleasure apart from our connection to God. Now, sometimes we think this means that we have to be in a state of constant Bible study, but that's not God's design. Of course, we can live in a way that's pleasing to God and still go out to dinner with friends or have a movie night or a game night, but avoiding sin will mean that we do not do those things in a way that violates God's expectations. We will not do, think, or say anything that violates God's expectations, his demands, or his design of us. So let's tease out this definition a bit to make it clear. I'm going to list out six things about sin. We'll go through these pretty quickly that will help us understand it more clearly. Because again, Christianity 101, this is our third lesson. So six truths about sin that we have to keep in mind. Six aspects of sin. Six facets that will help us understand this more deeply. Number one, sin is a specific kind of evil. In other words, not all evil is sin. Sickness is evil, but it's not sin. Earthquakes are evil, but they aren't sin. I'm going to give you a technical restatement of this from a a well-known 20th century theologian. Above the physical lies the ethical sphere in which the contrast between moral good and evil applies, and it is only in this sphere that we can speak of sin. I hope that straightens it up for everyone. Sin is the violation of God's design and his expectations by human beings. The violation of God's design and his expectations by human beings. That and not any other kind of evil is sin. Second truth about sin. Because of sin, there's something wrong with everything. Because of sin, there's something wrong with everything. This is big. And it touches literally everything about our lives. It's not just bad language or road rage. It's not even just about really bad behavior by men or abusive parents. Sin touches everything. In another reference, Isaiah goes almost unimaginably global. He says this, All our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. In other words, even at our best We are stained. Sin affects everything. In fact, the Apostle Paul suggests in Romans 8, you need to see this reference, that all of creation is aching and off kilter because of human sin. The creation itself will, when we get set free, be set free from its bondage to corruption. Everything is tilted and off kilter because of sin. Third, all of us have this problem. Sin is not a respecter of persons. This reality is the result of what theologians call original sin. By this they mean we all have it. 
It's part of being human. Remember the Isaiah 53 passage that Tanner read for us? We all like sheep have gone astray. In Romans 3, Paul puts it like this. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We believe here at Gateway and we practice baptism when people accept Christ for themselves and they make their own decisions. So we don't baptize our children. We wait until they're old enough to make a decision for themselves. And periodically, we'll have a baptism service here at Gateway, with, sometimes with children, often with adults. We have a hole in our floor up here in our fairly new building that we have used for baptisms a number of times, and we will again. Years ago, the church was not very large. We were fairly new, and we used to have this booklet that we would work through when a child wanted to be baptized. You know, some 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old kid. We would go through this booklet with them, and, and it would talk a little bit about sin, and then it would talk about Jesus, and it would talk about what baptism means, and it was really sweet, and it did a very good presentation of what the New Testament calls the gospel, the good news. Remember that. I'll repeat that again at the end of today. So I remember one young boy who was part of our church. He wanted to be baptized, and I, this is a great family, and I knew this kid was serious, and I knew he got it, so I was anxious. I wanted to go through this booklet with him myself, so I sat down with him going through it, and I got to this part. You know, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know what that means, buddy? That means all of us. All of us. And he's looking at me like, when is this going to be over? And I said, you think that means your sister? He looked at me eagerly. Absolutely. <laughs> How about your parents? A little less sure, but yes. Kids at school? Yes. He's gaining confidence now. Teachers at school? Yes. Everybody, yes, but, you know, there are religious people. There are people who kind of know everything about God, people like me. Do you think it means people like me? And you have never seen a child more confused in your life. What do I say? Because he knew that the right answer was yes. But could he say it to my face? All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody gets to live the life that's not a little bit of a mess in every area. Four, the problem is us, and we often don't know it, or we don't have it in mind. If you miss everything else, don't miss this point. The problem is us, and we often don't know it. We see this truth played out through the stories of the Bible, even in the background to Isaiah 59. Over and over again, God's people and others get themselves into messes, and over and over again, they don't see their own part. You and I have been there before. We've been in the middle of relational messes, for instance, and wow, I can't believe he's doing that. The problem is us, and we don't see it. We see this truth played out over and over again in our lives. The problem is us, and we know it, but we don't see it. We don't get it. Travis Collins told this story in a book, What It Means to Be Welcoming. I want you to hear this story. This is an awesome illustration of this principle. My friend Barry Thomas, Travis says, and I went camping at Sharando Lake a few summers ago. It had been raining and more rain was forecast, but we thought we could beat the odds. After we set up our tent, I was assigned the duty of gathering firewood. Unfortunately, everything was wet because of the rain. I gathered the driest wood I could find, but it wouldn't burn. Barry was cooking dinner on the Coleman stove, but he, we wanted a campfire, so I decided I would drive back a mile or so to the ranger shack to see if the rangers could point me to where I could buy firewood. On my way to the campground, I noticed another campsite from which campers had recently left, and I saw a hint of smoke rising from their campfire. Well, that wood is dry, I said to myself. So I pulled in, 
grabbed a log by its cool end from the fire and threw it in the back of my truck. I drove the mile or so down to the ranger shack, but when I stopped at the ranger shack, I noticed an awful smell and I saw smoke. Oh no, I thought, the ranger shack is on fire. And then I looked in my rearview mirror, it wasn't the ranger shack on fire, it was the log in the back of my truck. As I was driving, the wind had ignited the embers of that log and it was burning along with the lining of the bed of my pickup. I put out the fire quickly, but the melted rubber in the lining of that pickup truck is still visible, a reminder of a day when I saw smoke and flames and assumed someone else had a real problem, when in fact I had a problem. The problem is us, and we often don't know it. Number five, while acknowledging that sin leads to a whole host of problems, we've got to remember that the most significant feature of sin is that it separates us from God. The most significant feature of sin is that it separates us from God. In the dramatic confession of Psalm 51, some of you know this passage. This is King David, and he has committed adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He tries to arrange circumstances so that it doesn't get blamed on him, and eventually has her husband killed to accommodate that. Then he gets confronted with this, and he's overwhelmed by his own sin, and he, he writes this beautiful confession to God in Psalm 51. And in that confession, he says, Do not cast me away from your presence, because... He knows the effect that sin has. He knows the damage that it does to a connection with God. Before he said that, he said this, Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil. Of course, this was not technically true. He had killed someone. But the most significant feature of sin is always that it separates us from our God. Isaiah writes, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sin causes damage. It causes separation. And this separation shows up most prominently in our relationship with God. It certainly shows up in other places. As we said, something is wrong with everything because of our sin. But most prominently, damage has been done to our relationship with God. And I'm convinced we feel this separation. We know it. Even if we don't know this is exactly what we're feeling, and we try many things to satisfy the angst created by this separation, we try to accumulate things, we try to dull our senses, we try entertainment and purchase therapy and alcohol and pornography and relationships and accomplishments, but these things cannot satisfy the angst in our soul. They do not address the damage that has been done. So sixth, and most importantly, we need a savior. Not a decorator, not a teacher, not a consultant, not a counselor, not a guru. Those folks can be helpful, but we need a savior. Why such dramatic language? Why do I insist, why does the Bible insist that we need a savior? Because the damage that we have done to our relationship with God through sin must be satisfied. I'm going to say that again. The damage that we have done to our relationship with God because of our sin must be satisfied. We need to explain that. I read an article recently that perfectly explains what this means. In an article in Christianity Today, Mark Galley is one of the editors of that magazine, and he talked about how Deep down in all of us, the idea of punishment for sins actually makes sense to us. We know this. 
It's not arbitrary, and it's not primitive. Galley argues that punishment somehow, I'm going to quote him here, balances the moral books. That is why, he says, forgiveness as a mere act of the will is not sufficient. Forgiveness as a mere act of the will is not sufficient. Sins must be paid for as a debt must be paid for. You get that? Sins must be paid for. He says we know this deep down inside. As a debt must be paid for. And then he offered a couple of concrete examples. I want you to hear this. We first understand the nature of just punishment as children. Your sister repeatedly changes the channel you're watching on TV to watch what she wants. She's rude and unbending until your father steps in. An apology from her is all well and good, but you are not satisfied until your father adds that your sister can't watch TV for a week. Punishment is part of the solution to this problem, and if there is no punishment, you feel like justice has been cheated. Or, he goes on, take the trope that Hollywood regularly relies on in revenge movies. The screenwriters are appealing to something deep and basic in the human heart. When a great injustice has been done, retribution is due. The villain kills a number of people. All through the movie, the viewer wants the villain not merely to be caught, but to be punished, usually in some violent scene that leads to the villain's death. In spite of the predictable fireworks and excessive violence, we keep coming to such movies precisely because we are deeply satisfied by the punishment of the offender. We know it. We know the offense of sin must be satisfied. We know it must be punished. Think about this. When Matthew wrote his biography of Jesus, he already knew the end of the story. He knew that Jesus would be killed, and he knew that the resurrection would follow, and he knew the radical understanding of Jesus that would fall on those first followers of Jesus. In other words, he already knew that Jesus would pay the penalty for our sins through his death. Think about that. And then look at what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. The angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I don't think Joseph understood at all what the angel meant by save his people from their sins. But by the time he wrote this, Matthew knew and he wanted us to know. He wanted us to know that this baby grew up to be the one who shouldered our problem. He took the punishment for our sin on himself. Punishment had to happen. Jesus took it. He died our death so that we could live and have a connection with God. Now, many of you here at Gateway have been reading through the New Testament. We've been reading through the New Testament together this year, and it's been great for me. A few weeks ago, we finished the book of Romans at this point, and a few weeks ago, we read Romans chapter 3. I want you to see this titanic passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. For there is no distinction, and this is the verse we quoted a minute ago, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He wants to nail that in our minds and hearts as a key principle. He goes on, and are justified, that means made right with God, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation. And that means to satisfy something, to make up for something. 
that there's some kind of debt or there's some kind of emptiness, and that gets satisfied, that gets propitiated, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. That means he didn't forget about the debt that was owed. He took care of the debt that was owed in himself. He took our debt on himself so that justice could be satisfied, so that he could continue to be God. He could be just and also the justifier of anyone who has faith in Christ Jesus. All right, there are two profound applications that flow out of what we've said about sin this morning. The first one, we need Jesus. I don't care who you are. I don't care how long you've been in this journey. Advent is the season for you and I to remind ourselves we need Jesus. We need a Savior. We don't need a doctor. We need a Savior. Well, some of us also need a doctor, but we need a Savior. When we understand our sin, we reach out to Jesus. When we get this, we want him. He came to save, and we need saving. I found this awesome quote this week from an old school evangelist. I didn't know him, and I, did, I don't remember his name, but I wanted you to hear this. He said, most ailments need particular antidotes. Increasing the air pressure in your tires will not fix a troubled carburetor. Aspirin will not dissolve a tumor. If your water pipes are leaking, you call a plumber, not an oncologist, but a plumber will not cure cancer. Any adequate solution must solve the problem that needs to be solved, and singular problems need singular solutions. Some antidotes are one-of-a-kind cures for one-of-a-kind ailments. Sometimes only one medicine will do the job, as much as we'd like to think it to be otherwise. Mankind faces a singular problem. People are broken, and the world is broken, because our friendship with God has been broken, ruined by human rebellion. Humans, you and I, are guilty, enslaved, lost, and dead. All of us, everyone, everywhere. The guilt must be punished. The debt must be paid. The slave must be purchased. Promising better conduct in the future will not mend the crimes of the past. Promising better conduct in the future will not mend the crimes of the past. No, a rescuer must ransom the slave. A kindred brother must pay the family debt. A substitute must shoulder the guilt. There is no other way of escape. When we understand our sin, we reach out to Jesus. He is the solution. He is the Savior we need. So this morning, if you have put your life in Jesus' hands, then renew that this Advent season. You need a Savior, and you have it. If you have never placed your life fully in his hands, if you've no, I don't, I'm not talking about going to church. I don't care if you were raised in Sunday school or if you went to a local Catholic school through the eighth grade. I'm talking about making a decision, understanding your sin, feeling the pinch of his spirit on your heart, and willfully surrendering your life to him and saying, I think I get it. I want Jesus. If you've never made that decision, today could be the day. This could be the time. You say, yes, Lord, I'm in. There are going to be some people over here after the service who are willing to pray for you and talk with you. I'd, I'd love for you to jog over and 
let somebody know and solidify that decision today. Application number one, when we understand our sin, we reach out to Jesus. The second application involves how this, this truth about sin should position us in our relationship with others. So when we understand our sin, we are better able to extend grace and patience to others. When we understand our sin, we are better able to extend grace and patience to others. I was amazed by an interview I read this week. I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I've seen him before. As a famous British atheist, Alain de Baton, I think. Again, he's an atheist. He said this. You've got to hear this. I love the concept of original sin. I'm quoting. He's an atheist. The idea that we're all fundamentally broken and fundamentally incomplete. When asked why, he explained. Because original sin seems to be such a useful starting point. Imagine a relationship in which two people, this is him talking, imagine a relationship in which two people think they're great, you know, perfect. That's going to lead to intolerance and terrible disappointment when they realize basically they're not. Whereas, imagine a relationship that begins under the idea that two people are quite broken and therefore they need forgiveness. When asked to define broken, he said this, by broken, I mean not quite right. How good is that? There's something wrong with everything. So that's why the concept, this is him talking, that's why the concept of original sin seems so plausible and applicable and also kind. Because it basically says, look, when you meet someone new, just assume that something major has gone wrong here. <laughs> Treat everybody you meet as though they were laboring under some really big problem, basically. That's the starting point for any good encounter. When we understand our sin, we are better able to extend grace and patience to others. This is why the first followers of Jesus referred to his story as good news. <laughs> he died. He got slaughtered. And they called it good news because they came to recognize that everything that was separating us from God and all that was creating the dissonance between us and one another. There needed to be some satisfaction for that. There needed to be some punishment for that. And God himself, in order to be just and the justifier, God himself took that punishment and paid for it on our behalf. Let's pray. But Father, this morning we recognize with fresh eyes and fresh heart that we need Jesus. We need a Savior and our Savior has come, and we're so thankful. I want to pray, Lord, for those of us who have been walking with you for some time. I pray that this season you would remind us how desperately we need you, and also, God, that we would increasingly exude grace you would remind us this morning how prone we are to forget that we are the problem. Lord, I also pray for those who have never made a connection with you. I pray that you would speak, that our hearts would be turned toward you, and that we would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's go in peace and have a great week.